Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open up to John chapter 5 and stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. John 5, 1 through 15. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well, Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Pray that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So from Cana, you remember, Jesus was last in Cana in the previous passage. We move to Jerusalem where a feast is underway. Uh, What feast was happening in Jerusalem? Well, it was likely one of those three main pilgrimage feasts that were required. Those three times a year when the males of Israel were obligated to make their way to Jerusalem. That would be Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, The Feast of Weeks or the First Fruits of the Wheat Harvest or the Feast of Booths. Uh, Deuteronomy 16 says, Three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And so it's, it's likely one of those. We, we, we're not sure exactly um, what it is. But there Jesus is because it's time to be there. Right? It's time for him to follow what his father required in the Old Testament. They're, they're, he's there with his disciples, and he's following those Old Testament laws that were designating these days as a pilgrimage feast. He respected his father's commands given through Moses, and there he is uh, keeping them. And so Jerusalem, as was the custom of the I mean, it's the way cities were constructed at the time and still to this day had many gates. 
had many gates. Each of them is designated for some particular use. If you go back to the book of Nehemiah, you, uh, you can read about those gates because they, they are constructed or reconstructed, uh, those gates, as they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And so there are gates, they all have um, obvious names about their uses. There's the old gate, the valley, that's not, I don't, it's, it's not for old people. Um, it makes it, uh, anyway, it's just, the, it's just an old gate. Um, the valley gate, the refuse gate, or that's literally the gate of ash heaps, um, the water gate, the fountain gate, and many others. We read of the building of the sheep gate that is mentioned in our text in John, in Nehemiah 3.1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. And so notice there that it's priests who are building that particular gate. And uh, it was through this gate that we believe the many sheep that were used in the temple rituals would enter into Jerusalem for sacrifice. It was very near the temple court. At that gate, now back into Jesus' time, at that gate there was a pool called Bethesda. Literally that means the house of mercy. And the pool... That pool is surrounded by five porticos. And the sick would, would gather there, uh, especially during this time of year. This, the, the, the sick would gather there and use those porticos as shelter. Uh, a portico is just a roof supported by columns, right? We, we often see them on entrances to houses or, or buildings. The White House has a has a portico. The Lincoln Memorial has a portico under which the giant Abe Lincoln sits, uh, or the statue of him. Um, verse 3 begins by telling us that many sick and disabled people used to gather there. The sick, the blind, the lame, and the withered. Now why did they gather there? Because as the man says later in verse 7, the water gets stirred up. Water gets stirred up this time of year, this one time of year, and the man asserts that healings take place in that water. Now, if, you look, if you're looking at an ESV Bible, which I'm not sure why you would be doing that, um, you notice that there is no verse 4 in the passage. Right? It's gone. It's out of your Bible. It's not even there. Right? Verse 4 is, is not in your ESV. If you're looking at an NASB 95, which is the Pew Bibles, as you should be, um, there are brackets around the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. If you're looking at the King James Version, uh, verse 3 and 4 appear and there are no notes at all, right? It's just, it, it flows right through it. So what is going on here? Why do some of our Bibles have these verses and some of our Bibles not have these verses? Well, the NASB 95 margin note gives the explanation. It says this. It says, early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse 3 nor verse 4. So early manuscripts don't have the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. Um, the King James Version, right, was compiled using the best manuscripts that Erasmus had available in the 16th century, okay? That is what we refer to as the textus receptus, or the received text. Since that time, since the 16th century, when Erasmus got together what manuscripts he could, many more ma manuscripts have been found of Scripture, Many more extensive manuscripts, many older, much older manuscripts have been found of Scripture. Those copies of Scripture found on papyrus manuscripts and caves and, and other places um, get us, we assume, closer to the original, right? And why do we care about being closer to the original? Because we think that the original autograph is what is inspired, okay? That original autograph, that original, the original copy, the first copy is what is inspired. 
Okay, and so we assume that getting these manuscripts gets us closer to the original. And now, I, I don't want to get into a, a debate about whether we should use the received text for our translations or the modern critical text, um, which uses those old manuscripts. But I do want you to understand why there is this difference here, right? Why, if you're comparing Bibles, your Bible may not have this verse or may have a note or it may not even say anything and just plow right through it. Um, the King James Version used what they had, okay? And those verses were there. The ESV leaves it out entirely. The NASB leaves it in but brackets it off so that you know that the oldest manuscripts of Scripture don't have this text. But if you read some of the early fathers like Tertullian, who lived second century into the third century, he's aware of this text. He, he, he writes about it in his writings and it comes up, it's quoted. He knows about this, the text of verses uh, 3b and 4. So anyway, that's, that's the explanation. My inclination in this is not to put too much weight on the verses, but not to diminish them outright. Right? This is not the only time that we're going to face this question in the book of John. Right, if you flip over to John 7, at verse 53, and chapter 8, the first 11 verses, in the NASB, it's bracketed off, right? And um, it has a similar note. But um, what's contained here, it's, it contains an explanation of why the sick and disabled gathered here. If we omit these verses, verse 3 and 4, um, the passage is no less, under, you know, it, it doesn't make it uh, not understandable. We can take these out and the passage still flows. And in fact, it, 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 um, it flows well. Uh, in fact, to introduce them seems to make the passage a bit more difficult because it introduces this idea of angels stirring up water and making them a competition for first in. Right? There, there's, nothing, there's nothing really like that in all of the rest of Scripture. Uh, I can see why many modern translations would be prejudiced against the passage, though, because it explains a miracle, which would take, you know, which modern critical scholars would be inclined to disbelieve categorically. But nonetheless, there is something about this water that attracts the sick people here. Even if we disregard verses 3 and 4, the man wants to be put in the water when it is stirred up. Okay, perhaps the water doesn't heal. Perhaps the water doesn't heal, and the explanation of verses 3b and 4 is added some later point to make us think it does. Right? Somebody got the idea that, well, we could, I don't know. We could explain this and, and perhaps do something similar. Perhaps the water does heal and the explanation of verses 3 and 4 are a genuine explanation of what's going on here. I don't know. Regardless, what happens there that day with Jesus, the Son of God, has nothing to do with the water. You notice that? The water doesn't even come into this, this, this the, 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 um, what's happening. This man has been ill for 38 years. Imagine his difficulties, right? 38 years of illness. Some of you have been ill for 38 years. You've endured pain. You've endured your body doing things that are not normal for 38 years. Um, you and I may have long-term illness, but in many cases, because of modern technologies, there are ways at the very least to bring relief, or at least some relief, now, this man did not have Tylenol or antibiotics or x-rays or MRIs or heart surgery. He didn't have any of that. Even though he may have been more resigned to his difficulty than we would be today because he didn't have those things, he still wanted his affliction to end. He wanted it to end. And he wanted relief. He wanted to be healed. And here he was, 
there on the edge of that pool, seeking it. Hoping for it. Once a year during the feast, the water would be stirred and whoever got in there would be healed. And this miracle was this man's hope for relief. And perhaps he had attempted it for the last nearly four decades. Every year he went, and every year someone, someone preceded him into those waters. How discouraging would that be? But everything changed when Jesus is standing there near the temple. Jesus is there in Jerusalem. Jesus notices this man. Jesus noticed him lying there. He knew that he had suffered for a long time. Jesus, the very Son of God, speaks to him, right, and asks a question for which Jesus already knows the answer, right? Do you wish to get well, or do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? The whole multitude is there for the purpose of healing, and their focus is on the water. Any moment now the water would would begin that circulation or whatever it was, and there would be this this fierce pushing and shoving to get into it first. It was every man for, for himself, right? It's a selfish world that we live in. Not once had there been anybody beside him to help him into the water. Perhaps... Perhaps he was annoyed by Jesus' question because it would distract him away from his attention which is fixed on the stirring of the water and maybe this was, this was his year. Right? <clears throat> but think about it. More than the stirring of waters is there. More than an angel is there with him. There is God engaging him with a question. God's attention is is focused on him, and God knows what he wants and gives him the dignity of expressing what he wants. The sick man says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Whereas there had been that one every year who got into the water, here was the God of heaven giving this one his attention. God giving him personal attention. Perhaps he thought that Jesus would be the one to help him into the water. And what he says is his way of asking without asking, right? He's still hoping to be healed by the water, but Christ... And asking the question is drawing the man's attention to himself. Look at me. What do you want? <clears throat> and likely, he, Jesus is also trying to get the attention of everybody else who's gathered around there. So without any show, without any stirring of water, without any outward sign, Jesus just heals the man. The 38 years of suffering instantly come to an end. The 38 years God had given that man had come to an end. Here's an application from John Calvin that may encourage those of you who have been given bodily suffering from the Lord. In light of this man's healing, Calvin says, 38 years were a long period during which God had delayed to render to this poor man that favor which from the beginning he had determined to confer upon him. However long, therefore, we may be held in suspense, though we groan under our distresses, let us never be discouraged by the tediousness of the lengthened period. For when our afflictions are long continued, though we discover no termination of them, Still, we ought always to believe that God is a wonderful deliverer who by his power easily removes every obstacle out of the way. Every obstacle Jesus removes. He will. And that is a true statement. What does God have for you? What does God have for you? None of you have a flowery bed of ease ahead of you in this life. Not one of you does. 
Right? That, that is not what God gives His children in this world. But you can trust Him that He will give you what is good for you and He will deliver you by His power. He will do that. You will have a new life. You will have a new body. You will have a new world in which to live if, if, only if, you trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Now think about that for a moment. It, it, would, it would now take faith and obedience for the man to know he was healed. How many times had he tried in 38 years to get up and walk? 10,000 times? Perhaps every day he had tried to some extent, and now Jesus commands it, and he would have to exercise his faith to move. How many of us would dismiss this command of God with some sarcastic, you know, ah, that's, that's easy for you to say, bro, 38 years I've been going to the VA. This man, though, is simply just simply obedient to Christ's command and immediately finds that he is well. He's no longer crippled. He's no longer afflicted. He picks up his pallet and he walks. And God's power worked in him and it was working his own muscles in which he discovered God's power. He had to work his muscles. And all rejoiced, and the crowds began to sing Christ's praise, and he went on to heal everybody who had come to the pool. No, <laughs> that's not what happened. That is not what happened. What happened was this. Some rigid moralists who cared nothing for human suffering and nothing for this man got on their high horses about the Sabbath. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day, the text says. Bum, 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 bum. Those rigid men, the Jews, it says, quickly went to the man, not to revel at Jesus' power, not to rejoice at the man's relief, not to dance with him now that he could dance, and rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but to get in his face about Sabbath breaking. It is the Sabbath! I mean, you can hear them screeching at the top of their lungs. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Just screaming in his face. He's been healed of 38 years, and his first experience is the Jews coming to him and trying to convict him of sin. Now, why is this statement like fingernails on a chalkboard? It, it is not because these men reverenced the Sabbath day. That was good. It's not because they reverenced the Sabbath day. We just heard the catechism on the Sabbath, and this day is the Sabbath. Right? And we are to remember it to keep it holy. Rather, it is a terrible statement, first, because they refuse to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Second, because they refuse to acknowledge the power of God demonstrated by Jesus. And third, and this is most important, because their interpretation of the rules is an attempt for these men to be holier than God himself. That's what they're doing. They're trying to be holier than God. They are going beyond what is written in God's Word. Oh, they would have their Scripture references ready. They would go to Nehemiah 3, 13, 19, and they would say, uh, Nehemiah 13, 19 says, It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. 
And then they would go, and, and, and here's, here's a better verse. Jeremiah 17, 21-22 says, Thus says the Lord, Take heed for yourselves, and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day, or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your forefathers." And those indeed are prohibitions that the Jews were to observe on their Sabbath day. And they are explications of the fourth commandment, which we are to keep today. Are you keeping the Sabbath day holy? Are you conducting commerce and making others conduct commerce for you on the Sabbath day? That is a breaking of the Sabbath day in a sin. These Jews who confront this newly healed man would be happy to beat down this man and cripple him with their reading of their verses. They do not prove what they think they prove. Right? Is there really no difference between conducting commerce, hauling loads for sale that go through the gates of the city, and a man picking up his pallet after he has been miraculously healed? Is there no... No categorical difference between those things. But this is how Pharisees work. They over-apply the law. That's what Pharisees do. They over-apply the law, and in over-applying the law, they become what they think is holier than God himself. They usually do it because... Why do the Pharisees usually over-apply the law? Because they... They've figured out a way to appear like they keep the laws that they're fighting for. It's called the hypocrite's righteousness. Right? He's found a way never to be seen carrying a pallet on the Sabbath day. It's easy. He doesn't even have a pallet. Right? He doesn't carry around a pallet. He's not a cripple. And so it's easy for him not to carry around a pallet on the Sabbath day. And, and his boast is in the keeping of that law, right? And his joy is pointing out everybody else's failure to meet his standard of righteousness. Though his standard of righteousness is not God's standard of righteousness. Do you not see this in your own lives continuously? Brothers and sisters, I mean seriously, stop and think about it. Somebody makes a different choice than you about something that is not a gospel issue. Let's say it's how to educate your children. <laughs> that you must educate your children and do so is the is and do so in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is God's command. Right? No way around that, but ha but how you intend to do that is a matter of wisdom and circumstances. But ladies, when somebody determines not to homeschool, for example, I bet some of you could come up with some pretty good arguments, perhaps 50 to 60 of them, why that somebody is in danger of corrupting their children and ultimately disobeying God for that choice. Ryle writes, for a man to carry merchandise and wear on the Sabbath was one thing. For a sick man suddenly and miraculously healed to walk away to his home carrying his mattress was quite another. To, to forbid one man to carry his burden was scriptural and lawful. To forbid the other was cruel and contrary to the spirit of the law of Moses. The act of the one man was unnecessary. The act of the other was an act of necessity and mercy. Even apart from the, the man obeying, I mean, even apart from the obvious fact that he's obeying a command from Jesus himself, the application of the law they were making was wrong and was the bitter fruit of their own self-righteousness. They were bludgeoning this man with their application of the law and their application was wrong. Is your self-righteousness a burden to those around you? 
I mean, think through it. Yes, it is. All of us do it. Our self-righteousness becomes a burden to those around us. Are your judgments continually a burden to everybody but yourself? Are your views a burden to your church and her peace? Right? It is so easy. It is so easy to go beyond what is written. Right? We like to... We, we like to make rules about tithing mint, dill, and cumin and neglect to care for our parents, right? Like Jesus points out. That's what we do. And we also like to, to, um, we like to make one little rule by which we think we are keeping the whole command. This is... This is um, this this whole example that we have here. This is what critical race theory does, right? It it makes the judgment that all our problems are due to other people's sins. All our problems are due to other people's sins. That's what our self righteousness is always doing. The problem here is other people's sins. And I'm not denying that other people's sins are an actual problem. They are. But critical race theory puts forward a solution, a certain amount of money and reparations, for example, that they claim would, would even the score and lead to more systemic equality, but it's an impossible solution, right? Because A, who knows what sin costs? And B, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And see, forgiveness is an absolute necessity for reconciliation. Forgiveness. Oh man, forgiveness? Instead, what we see is the self-proclaimed non-racist bludgeoning those they've deemed racist with their interpretation of the law. It's exactly what's happening in this passage. Taking a false interpretation of God's word, bludgeoning people with it for your own self-righteousness. And this man who's just been healed is getting beat over the head by a bad interpretation of Sabbath keeping. It's depressing. It's sad. Jews are doing the same thing to this man that they took what was good, which is Sabbath-keeping, and made it a burden rather than a blessing. They were opportunists who found a way to rain on this man's parade. Right? They were, in the end, attempting to be more righteous than God himself, who required that work not be done by bringing loads into the city or into the house, but nowhere forbid the incidental picking up of a pallet after a miraculous healing. This man was not attempting to work and not rest from his labors, but was obeying a direct command of God. And in his very picking up of the pallet, what is he doing? In his very picking up of the pallet, he's demonstrating the power of God. He's using his muscles to demonstrate the healing that had just taken place. And so, you know, this is more of an act of worship than it is an act of work. It's worship. The healed man says, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, there was no denying this man, God rather, who had done such a wonderful thing in healing me. There's no denying him. I, I mean, he, no. You know, he told me to do this, I was going to do this. Can you imagine him after being healed by Jesus, telling Jesus that, you know, your command is a violation of the Sabbath and I'm not about to do what you just told me to do, Jesus. Can you imagine him doing that? That would be like us being unwilling to obey Christ after he has given us a new heart and eternal life. Wouldn't it? That would be as absurd as us choosing to disobey God when he's given us his Holy Spirit. What intense ingratitude that would be, right? God has given us the ability to walk spiritually and we refuse. And sadly, we do, but it should not be that way. 
The Jews asked the man who gave him the command. Notice that they don't ask who healed him, but asked him who gave him the command to pick up his pallet and walk. They want to find fault. They are, willing to, they are not willing to think the best of Jesus. They walk around making accusations. They have a censorious spirit. So censorious is it that it will culminate in them yelling, Crucify! when Jesus is standing before Pilate. The healed man doesn't know how to answer them. He doesn't know who's done this. He doesn't know Jesus. And they, can't, and they, they couldn't ask him now because Jesus slipped away in the crowd, slinks away, uses the gathered people to make his way out of that place, slipped away in the crowd, now, sometimes, sometime later, perhaps it was days later, Jesus finds the man in the temple and asks him uh, and speaks to him again. What, what Jesus says now is worth thinking about. He says to the man, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. What are we supposed to do with that? Every American evangelical reformed grace movement bone in our bodies is just like, yikes. We are discouraged by that statement, aren't we? Do not sin anymore lest something worse happen to you. Does Jesus really mean to say that this man's 38 years of bodily affliction came to him because he had sinned? And I'm supposed to, you know, as a pastor in an American church, I'm supposed to protect you from what Scripture teaches, not teach you what Scripture teaches. Does that mean the things that I've suffered have come to me because I've sinned? Do I have Crohn's disease because I committed a specific sin on a specific day? Well, let's think about it. There are sins we can commit that can lead to bodily affliction. There are people who try drugs once and their bodies are devastated by them. Right? Minds altered, kidneys dissolved, destroyed. There are, there are people who commit sexual sins and the result is incurable diseases. Sin with the body can lead to bodily debilitation. You just can't. But on the other hand, there's the example of Job. Right? For, for his righteousness, the Lord allowed Satan to touch his body. Many different afflictions came to him as the Lord allowed it. And what was God's purpose in those afflictions? God's purpose in those afflictions was to see whether God would curse him to his face. See whether Job would curse God to his face. And though he cries out in bitter anguish through that whole book, he's crying out, saying he wishes he had never been born, Job does not curse God. He is sustained in his righteousness. So in this case, the circumstances of his bodily affliction did not arise because of some sin. So we can't make a hard and fast rule that there is one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and affliction. There's also the example of the man born blind, just four chapters ahead in the Gospel of John. Of him, Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he was blind. So again, we can't assume there is some sin that leads to some disease, but we also shouldn't deny that there may be some connection between specific afflictions and specific sins. Nowhere is this clearer than this statement from 1 Corinthians. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. The Lord's table. The Lord's table that we're about to partake of is that clear place in Scripture that says, if you do this, this is what will happen. Now, we don't believe it because we're scientific. 
We don't believe in these sort of spiritual realities. We don't believe it, so we just charge to the table without thinking. But this is what Scripture teaches, right? Not judging the body rightly and coming to this table made many in Corinth weak, sick, and dead. They didn't just fall asleep. That's a euphemism for death. After outlining the many abuses of the Lord's table among the Roman Catholics of his time, Calvin then turns to, it's amazing, he's going through this, it's his commentary on this passage, 1 Corinthians 11. He's going through and he's, he's pointing out all of the, the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church toward the sacrament, and then he goes, and says, and here's our abuses. And here's what he says. He speaks about his own church, the Reformed Church's abuses of the table. Here's what he says. He says, Nay, even among ourselves who have the pure administration of the supper restored to us in virtue of a return, as it were, from captivity, how much irreverence, how much hypocrisy on the part of many. What a disgraceful mixture, while without any discrimination, wicked and openly abandoned persons intrude themselves such as no man of character and decency would commit, would admit to come in common conversation. And yet, after all, we wonder how it comes that there are so many wars, so many pestilences, so many failures of the crop, so many disasters and calamities, as if the cause were not manifest. And assuredly, we must not expect a termination to those calamities until we have removed the occasion of them by correcting our faults. I mean, Calvin was seeing many without faith many profane men coming to this table that is reserved for his children alone in Geneva. That's what he was observing. There was one point in Geneva's tenure in, 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 or Calvin's tenure in Geneva where he got in front of the table and blocked people physically from coming up to the table because they had told them that they were not welcome. But he's observing this and he's, he, from that he looks out on the world and, and makes a direct connection to wars, diseases, crop failures, and natural disasters. Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. Crazy. I mean, how hard is it for us to think this way? We have scientific explanations for our diseases. COVID is a product of a lab leak in Wuhan, China, we say. It affects the body this way and that way. It is transmitted this way and that way. It's destroyed by this action of the immune system as bolstered by this kind of vaccine. Right? But we refuse to think of COVID as what it is, a judgment from God. A judgment from God. I know you guys want to laugh at me right now. You want to laugh. A judgment from God. Bloodshed. And wars the same way. Judgment from God. Famine and yes, even rising temperatures that cause crops to fail and, and other crops to prosper. God's judgment. We fail to think of the sovereign God dispensing His judgments. And we fail to think of it. And why does God do that? For what purpose? Well, it's what Calvin said, the correcting of our faults. The correcting of our faults. And so all who are afflicted in the body should be humble and admit that there are ample reasons, there are thousands of sins that they have committed to account for why God would afflict them. Always. And no Christian will avoid this kind of treatment from God because all are appointed to die. At some point, you will be afflicted, right? Unless the Lord returns. 
Your body will be afflicted, and one of the purposes of that affliction sent to you from God will be to humble you and make you contemplate your faults. Bodily afflictions soften us up to be realistic about the sins we've committed before a holy God. Bodily afflictions soften us up to humble ourselves, to to honestly know our predicament, and to seek and cry out for a Savior from our sins. And Jesus warns this man. He warns the man, did you learn from 38 years of affliction, man? Did you learn from 38 years of affliction that God sent you? Do you hate your sin? Do you hate your sin? Well, sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. Worse than 38 years of being crippled? Worse than having to depend upon others for 38 years just for his daily sustenance? And Jesus is like, yeah, hell is worse. Hell is worse. Hell is worse. These words of Jesus, so that nothing worse happens to you, are a stern warning about the devastating consequences of sin. Pursue your sin without thought of repentance in something much worse than Crohn's disease or MS or dementia is coming to you. So the purpose of all of our afflictions is to give us a distaste for our sins. To make us like to make us be realistic for once about ourselves. To make us hate our sins and ultimately it's to make us turn to Christ with thankful hearts for salvation for somebody who's so wrecked. To give us and then and then not just to turn to Christ for that holiness, but to give us impetus to live a life of holiness as a, as, as a thank offering to God for the rest of our lives. Christian, the Christian faith is not simply about being forgiven. It's about walking in holiness. Right? You're forgiven for a purpose, which is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever by walking in holiness. Bodily affliction teaches us to condemn ourselves and cling to Christ. It has everything to do with our sins. It has everything to do with our sins. If you are loving your sin, you should be sobered up by Jesus' words here. You should be sobered up. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You would do well to welcome bodily affliction so that you start taking God's holiness seriously. You should long for God to discipline you for your sins as a father disciplines his children so that you think rightly about your sins for perhaps the first time in your life. You will think lightly of Jesus if you think lightly of your sins. An affliction and the inevitability of death passing over that great mysterious threshold will be a blessing to you for its ability to take your mind off of this world and put it on God and His mercy in Jesus Christ. Look at the hospitals. When was the last time you went to a hospital and walked through the ICU? Look at the hospitals. Look at the destruction of wars. There's nothing romantic about warfare. There's nothing romantic about seeing limbs of people blown off and people gassed to death and children gasping for air. Look at the natural disasters going on around us and stop thinking of such things outside of God's sovereign will. Nothing comes to pass that He is not ordained. Everything is laced with meaning. 
And as we look on our affliction, our thoughts should go to sin in general and not even stop there. As we look on our affliction our experience, or experience it ourselves, our thoughts should go to our own sins, our own personal sins. Not just sins of our youth, but the sins we committed yesterday against our own children or that we committed in the, the hidden space of our bedrooms. Will you let God speak to you in your afflictions, in your suffering, in your disease? Will you let God speak to you? Ryle says, as it is with sickness, so it is with recovery. Renewed health should send us back to our post in the world with a deep hatred of sin, a more thorough watchfulness over our own ways, and a more constant purpose of mind to live to God, Far too often the excitement and novelty of returning health tempt us to forget the vows and intentions of the sick room. There are spiritual dangers attending a recovery. Oh, man. Well, would it be for us all after illness to grave, to engrave those words on our hearts, let me sin no more lest a worse thing come unto me. Remember that Jesus healed this man of his affliction and he did so before he ever said anything about sinning no more. He healed him. What mercy, right? What mercy, what kindness. But the mercy of God did not end with his healing. The mercy of God was demonstrated then in Jesus' concern for the root cause of this man's affliction. This warning from God was God's abundant mercy to him. His release from disease, Jesus knew, could become a more terrible affliction than his disease. So finally, let me, let me just say this. The next time we are tempted to give into our sin, into our temptations, do not fail to remember your afflictions. The next time we are tempted to um, to give into anger, to give into that plaguing discontentment, right? To give into unkindness, to give into our pride and our lust, our greed. Sober yourselves up with a remembrance of what Jesus has said, not just to this cripple who is healed, but he says it to you today sin no more, that nothing worse happen to you. And so this is what it means to fear God. This is all throughout the scriptures. Fear God, fear God, fear God. Keep his commandments. This is what fearing God is. Let us tremble before God and, as it says in 2 Corinthians 7, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Don't don't fear man who who can just kill your body. Fear fear God who can cast body and soul into hell. 